And welcome to PodPod. Thank you so much for joining us for another podcast episode all about the Wild West that is podcasting. My name is Rihanna Dillon and I'm delighted to bring back Matt Hill, who runs the production company Rethink Audio and is the co-founder of the British Podcast Awards, and Gideon Spanier, editor-in-chief of Campaign and editorial director of PodPod, who the more eagle-eared of you will remember from our interview with Deborah Meaden a few weeks ago. Hi both, how are you doing? Very well. Yeah, also well, thank you. Good to be back. Excellent. So Matt, you're one of the busiest people I know, but something big is going down right now. Yes, busy, busy, busy. Uh, We've just had the Australian Podcast Awards, powered by iHeartRadio. I have to do that, it's all the sponsorship. Which we've always built as sort of like the biggest party in Australian podcasting. Although I recently learned that Laura Byrne, who does one of the big shows over there, got married this weekend and invited pretty much all of Australian podcasting to her wedding. Oh, wow. And so I think we're the second biggest party in Australian podcasting, but I'll take it. I'll take it. That's really funny, actually, that you mentioned that because when I hosted the British Podcast Awards a few years ago with Clara Amvo, we were Mm. given these confetti cannons. I kept mine. I didn't use it and I saved it. And guess what I used it? For my wedding. So one of Mike's nephews, there's a great picture of him opening this British Podcast Awards confetti cannon. Did you say powered by Acast (laughs) afterwards? Because I think was really important that year. (laughs) We didn't, although someone did ask Mike at the wedding if he had a voice reel. So there you go. (laughs) Gideon, we are going to be talking to Dino Sophos today. Matt and I interviewed this podcast producer extraordinaire. And I guess if that name rings a bell, it's because he's behind some of the biggest news podcasts, Americast, Brexitcast, and now, of course, news agents. But how has he kind of got to this point? How is he such a big deal in podcasting? Well, I think because the idea of journalism being produced in this audio format and something where you can really get under the skin of a story really delve deeply is something that Dino did at the BBC and with his production company, Persephonica, he went to Global, the big radio group, and brought Emily Maitlis and John Sopel to create this podcast, The News Agents, which debuted just at the start of the autumn, just days before Liz Truss started as Prime Minister. And political podcasts were already compelling, but talk about good timing. I know, it's kind of Incredible, actually. I guess there is such a need for immediacy with the current state of the political landscape, and they have capitalised on that incredibly well. So in the interview, we kind of covered a lot about political commentary, but something that I thought was particularly memorable was our chat about AI. PodPod editor Adam Shepard wrote a really interesting article about this last week on podpod.com. What do you guys think, Matt, about AI in podcasting? Yeah, I think the idea of being able to translate an interview from the native language into a different language, but using their voice, so like synthetically manipulating the the speaker's voice to turn it into different languages, is absolutely fascinating. I've heard a couple of demos of this practice as well. You know, it's not quite there yet as technology, and I think Dino will agree, but it is going that way. And that's what's, I think, most exciting that, you know, All of these markets can open up for English language podcasts that weren't really options before. They were, they had to be kind of working with local production companies, 
to kind of like penetrate the market and do it in their own style. So really interesting. And I look forward to seeing how it develops. Gideon, I mean, you're, as we said, editorial director of PodPod. Do you see AI becoming um, a big thing with us here? Are you looking to replace me with a robot, Gideon, is what I'm asking. You're irreplaceable. And (laughs) uh, Adam did say that in his column. And I think it's super interesting because I've seen it in all aspects of media. This is not quite AI, but I challenge people. I have children. I actually don't know the phone numbers of my kids. And what happens is when technology takes things off the thinking list, that's really, really helpful. I've used Google Translate and it is amazingly good for sort of basic comprehension of things. And I really think that the way that AI technology can help in the short term is just speed up some things. Like we do the transcripts for these podcasts, for example. Uh, I, as a journalist, I get a little bit wary of what the technology can do in terms of translation and deep fakes and all that kind of thing. I think the basic principle that this is something where you can get your podcast, your communication out to different audiences all around the world, that it can be actually a vehicle for inclusivity is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at Podcast Day 24, which we hosted, you know, a number of weeks ago, I think that sense that podcasts travel the world, how amazing to travel because they're in different languages. Absolutely. Gideon, Matt, stay there. We're going to come back to you after hearing our chat with Dino Sophos. Here he is. Dino Sophos, welcome to PodPod. How are you doing? I'm really well, thanks. I've just come out of party conference season, so I'm completely knackered. I have been in sort of air-conditioned conference centres and hotel rooms for the past two weeks. But a lot happier to be home and really glad to be joining you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I've really been enjoying the output, though, of you guys in (laughs) conference halls. So thank you so much. It's been a lot more entertaining, actually, than it ever has been before for me. Well, thanks very much. And we've we've certainly been spoilt for content and stuff to talk about because the nightmare scenario is you commit to going to these things and you end up being there and you and you feel like you're in the wrong place. And actually, for the first day of the Labour conference, we kind of thought, mm, hang on, are we, are we in the wrong place because of what was going on in the broader economy? But actually, they were both really, really interesting. The Conservative conference was complete chaos. I've been going to these things for over 10 years now. And for the first time, it was basically the press office just going, sort your own bids out. If you bump into a cabinet minister in the bar and they agree to talk to you, go for it. So we're like, okay, cool. This is the first time we've taken the news agents on the road and we didn't really have a fixed base. So we sort of had a roadcaster and a Marantz, which was actually really great to be mobile and just to be able to pitch up. And we did a Grant Chaps interview just outside one of the tents, pulled up some chairs. We got a camera across it. We got the Marantz out and it was just really nice to be flexible. So we're toying with the idea of next year, if we do party conferences, which I'm sure we will, whether we actually need like a fixed space or whether we're just roving. Uh, But yeah, we learned a lot from our first kind of OB as it were. That's really interesting. How did that compare? Because you started out in radio. Mm. How did that compare to doing a radio OB outside broadcast? Radio OBs are a nightmare because <laughs> just it's just the live it's just the live link, isn't it? It's just you know connecting yeah. back to base. And I remember one 
year in Brighton at the Grand Hotel when I was doing an OB with John Pinar with Pinar's Politics Sunday morning. And it was just before the hotel was filling up. And we had, you know, one of the BBC engineers there, one of the best in the business, fantastic. We had the, well, I guess it was connecting via Comrex and the line was brilliant and stable. And I was sat in this sort of makeshift, like, edit suite behind a table looking at John and just behind my eyesight I could see one of the hotel staff was cleaning and they were about to plug in the hoover and they plugged in the hoover but they unplugged the entire power powering ROB so the whole thing just went zoop off air and it took us you know it took us five, five, six minutes before we could reconnect. So that was, so it's so nice just not to be doing like live stuff. And just like, just why I love podcasting actually, especially daily podcasting, because you get the buzz and the energy and the adrenaline of, of live, because effectively, you know, you're putting it out two hours later after you've recorded, but you don't have that stress of what if the line drops? What if we need to re-record something? It's just great. I love podcasting. <laughs> Do you not get the stress of the edit then? Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that must be, that is so wildly different from radio. Yeah, you, you do have the stress of the edit, but I, I think we, we we really enjoy it. It's just, it's so nice to be able to, mm. you know, how much editing do we do? I mean, it's, it's recorded pretty much like the main body of the podcast is recorded as live, but it means you can put some production in it. We can record bits of them being played the Benny Hill theme she went outside and drop it in and layer it and there's a little bit of production it just gives you a lot more flexibility it is stressful and, you, and having to turn an edit around you know finish recording at one o'clock say and trying and getting it in people's feeds by five is stressful but we've mm-hmm. got a fantastic team of producers who are audio whizzes and know what they're doing and and the, and the more and more you, you do it the more you get into a flow I'm glad you've mentioned John already because you've talked about the importance of the relationship between producer and Mm. presenter. And is that even more important in podcasting when there's, you're not necessarily guaranteed that success, you need to get listeners on board, you have to build Mm. up a level of trust even more than in radio? Oh, I've not thought about that, you know. I think that the relationship between, and did a session about this at the Radio Academy with John Pienaar last year, I think that the relationship between talent and producer is absolutely pivotal on any output, really. There are different challenges in getting people to click on your podcast, sure. I don't think the link is different, though. I think it's they're equally as important in different ways. I guess as a, as a podcaster, you know, when you're live radio, you're literally looking behind the glass and looking at your producer to kind of go, now what if something goes wrong? Yeah. I guess you've got a little bit more of a safety net in podcasting, but still it's the same. The talent are then relying on you to do a really fantastic edit and to turn things around. And so many times we get out of a recording and the, and the presenters are going, oh my God, that was rubbish. I really didn't feel that went well. And, and you have got to kind of act as the, what we all do as producers, you sort of acting as like the listener, I guess, and going, mm-hmm. I really like that bit. That's going to work. I need you to redo that bit. Let's redo that bit. But it's all working as a team. And in fact, after the Liz Truss episode, we recorded a discussion because you're you're having to do sort of on-the-fly analysis. You just get straight out of the hall, sit down and record straight away. You're expecting a lot of the talent to kind of process their thoughts very, very quickly as, as they do in live radio. Yeah. But we recorded the first discussion. And actually, we all sort of looked at each other after we'd recorded 20 minutes and just went, that just didn't feel right, didn't feel very good. Let's have another go. We had a quick debrief of what we liked and what we didn't. And then... John Sopel came out with this incredible 
analogy and comparison to the Liz Truss's speech of the enemies to the people. And he said, it's, it's been yeah. ticking over in my mind, but it reminded me of Trump. And he didn't do that in the first take. Yeah. And the second take, and Emily was like, oh my God, when you said that, the, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. And it was, it was just like that sort of moment. And yeah, I guess if we were alive, we would have missed it the first time, but because we just had mm-hmm. a beat to think about it and the flexibility to be able to just look at each other and go, no, let's re-record that. Yeah, again. One of the many reasons I love podcasting. I listened to that episode and I really I really enjoy the analysis, actually. Oh, great. Thanks. I think what's so... Sometimes you think this newsreader isn't really allowed to say what they're mm. really thinking because, you know, they work for the BBC. And so... But I'm sure they think like I do. I sometimes end up projecting my thoughts onto them. And actually in this, we do get a bit behind the curtain, don't we? So yeah. tell us about the ease in which the incredible, actually, presenters slipped from doing the news broadcast to podcasting and how that changed the hmm. the way that they analyzed news well i think with emily and john specifically they'd already done a good year on americast which was very very similar actually so emily pivoted from auto cue to you know podcast studio very well and had experience of doing that as did john so that kind of conversational free flowing analysis that's why the transition from Americas to the news agents was so seamless for them. But sure, the the impartiality and the freedom to be a little bit more honest than they maybe could have been at the BBC, I think is definitely shifted. And actually it's shifting all the time. You know, John has been on air as a BBC journalist since the 1980s. You know, it's not something you want to disown. Our BBC training for all of us is hugely important and yeah. being accurate and fair but yeah being able to call something out or give some analysis that may have just crossed a line at the BBC is certainly very liberating and and enables us to have a lot punchier analysis I I would say it's like a toddler taking the stabilizers off a bike a little bit it takes a little bit of time and we're learning every day and we're experimenting every day even just the kind of language that John and Emily are using, I think Newscast and Brexitcast, Americast, all those podcasts, they sounded very different to BBC Output. And that was one of the joys yes. of it. It was like hearing, you know, Laura and Catcher basically doing sex jokes on a podcast, like the Europe editor and the political editor. Like would never happen yeah. in any other space. <laughs> and people really loved that. They, like, they liked hearing their journalists being unbuttered and, and ultimately human and authentic. But I think now in this space, we, we just, there's never that, oh what are the mail going to write up about this or what a uh, boss is going to say about this? Actually, it's just, we have a lot more freedom to be as human and authentic as, as possible, but very much keeping the accuracy and the fairness. And as, as I've said before in other interviews, you know, Emily and John are not interested in becoming shock jocks. You know, that's not their style. It's never been their style. So it's not like they're trying to be different in a way. They're, they're just kind of, D-B-B-C-ifying, if that's a word. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, it's definitely a thing if it's not a word. When you kind of think back to even before Brexit cast, what sparked this idea of we could do this as a podcast and we could make this successful? You know, what were those initial seeds? How did that happen? I think changing trends in news consumption, for sure. And in 2017, when I first came up with the idea for election cast, which was the precursor to any of that format. That just came from hearing amazingly talented and knowledgeable news correspondents in the newsroom having a chat and me just going, I want to put this on air somehow. And can we do a podcast? And at that time, newspapers and political magazines had started doing podcasts. 
And I just thought it was ridiculous that the BBC as broadcasters weren't inhabiting that space and thought we could do a better job of it, actually, because they were broadcasters, mm-hmm. not, not newspaper columnists, and that the production values could be higher and it could be more reactive because, you know, certainly with like my five live training, the breaking news, we used to getting things out quickly and you know the news gathering operation that the bbc has and the studios and the tech so it was kind of a a combination of all those things but ultimately just an intuition of the audience people consuming news in the age of twitter and blogs and podcasts of course even though they weren't as big then as they are now that people wanted that kind of authentic unbuttoned conversational warm approach to to telling stories and the fact that they wanted things on demand they wanted to be able to listen to content at a time that was convenient for them and one of the things that we created with all those podcasts was, was we formed a habit which is ultimately what every podcaster wants to do and what's been amazing to see at the news agents is the listening figures are huge and they're growing and we know when people are listening obviously thanks to the data and we can see straight away that we're forming a habit so people are Mm. are are listening and sticking with it and coming back and we're getting tweets from listeners and emails going oh i really want to hear your latest episode when is it people going we've been refreshing our feed waiting to hear it and it's like well we're trying to get it out as quickly as possible and i and i just love that and we had that with brexit cast you know when we did the whole i think we pioneered and lots of people do it now but this like emergency podcast thing and the klaxon that was a brexit cast thing right and that when big news happened in brexit land and we would have hundreds and hundreds of tweets from listeners going emergency brexit cast question mark it's just lovely having that relationship with the audience who are just hungry for the content and want you to be there for them and also creating and i think this is this is always the challenge with news and we've just seen a really really busy news week there are periods of news there were periods of the brexit negotiations which were quite dull but actually the numbers didn't dip hugely because people they'd formed that habit they wanted to hear the presenters having a conversation and yeah sure it's a lot more interesting if the negotiations have just collapsed and people are hungry for knowledge but they also just want to be part of that gang of presenters so the presenters personalities i think as you say do drive so much of news agents and persephonica you set up with tom o'hara and Mm. the papers kind of put it that you lured Emily Maitlis and John Sopel and Lewis Goodall away from the BBC. Did they actually take much luring? I think luring is a bit of a weird word. I wouldn't put it like that. I mean, I think it was just, we loved working with each other on Americast. We had such a hoot. And John always says, you know, he was on the 10 o'clock news every night during Trump times and was on the Today programme. The only thing that people would stop him when he was walking the dog was the podcast. I love the podcast. I'm listening to the podcast. I'm listening to you now, you know, and that was the same for all the correspondents, you know, Laura Koonsberg and Adam and Chris Mason. They just got so much back from it, Mm -hmm. you know, and I guess... As journalists, what do journalists want? They want the room to be able to talk and to and the space and the time to be able to tell everybody about what they know about, right? So I think it was the format, the fact that we had such a laugh working on it and it was creating something new. And basically, last Christmas, I think Emily, you know, well documented now, she's she's done a few interviews where she's talked about it, was, was getting itchy feet. And I think she'd done a long stint on Newsnight and was ready for the next challenge. And again... It's not a secret that lots of people were after Emily. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, when 
we went for a walk and we had a chat and we were kicking around some ideas for podcasts. And then we just suddenly thought, well, we really enjoyed AmeriCast. Why can't we just do a more ambitious version of a news podcast? And why can't it be daily? And why can't that be the main thing we do and create a brand and have video and drive the agenda and set the agenda and do the big interviews that Emily likes doing? So I think when we concocted that plan, I mean, it all happened very quickly. And John was being lined up for the political editor job at the time. Yeah. And I think Emily just spoke to him and said, Dino and I have just been for a walk. What do you reckon? And he said, I love it. Let's do it. Mm. So <laughs> then, then we sat down fairly quickly last January following that conversation with James Rear at Global and pitched the idea to him. And he loved it. And it all happened very, very quickly. And they have been such a supportive partner. And as a small production company... I knew that, that, you know, we are doing lots of podcasts that we'll produce by ourselves, you know, as originals and we'll partner with, with, with others. But to do a daily, you need a proper kind of news gathering operation, right? Yeah. You, need, you need that. You need an organization that can, that can drive it uh, as well behind the scenes. So we knew that we needed a really ambitious partner. Uh, and, and we couldn't have asked for a, for a better partner than Global. But yeah, to your point, I, I didn't, I think luring is a strange word. We, we all wanted to work with each other again and we, yeah. we've had the opportunity to do it. And at the end of the day, it was too good an offer to turn down. And as we all keep saying, I mean, I've been really lucky. People, I'm always struck and I always have to sort of like just remind myself how lucky I've been. So many people go, oh, it's amazing to just be able to launch something new. Like how often do you get the chance to do that? And actually I go, well, I've done it quite a lot, you know, since election, <laughs> and that's kind of what I've, I've done. I've created new formats because I just love doing it. But when you speak to other people in news, they're like, well, we've just, you know, jumped from existing format to existing format. And I think that's what's so interesting about the podcasting space now is, uh, and the media landscape more broadly, you know, you're seeing just new opportunities for talent and room for ideas to be implemented, I guess. With your podcast formats, when you started them, it has always been at these times of quite strong political strife. So you mm. have, you know, the midst of Brexit, the midst of what was going on in America. Do you think that those sorts of kind of huge spikes in the news are always the time to start a news podcast? Or do you think, you you know, you could do it in the middle of, a, you know, talking about other countries even? Mm. Could it just be in the middle of a, a normal political government with nothing else really going on? Do you think that would work? I just don't know what that means anymore, normal. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, since yeah. since I started in news, kind of like, it all kind of, for me, went back to the kind of independence referendum, the Scottish independence referendum. And since then, it's just been crazy. Coalition, Brexit, you know, one thing or the, the other, COVID. So I I'd honestly, I can't answer that question because there's never been a period of more than like two months where it's felt. I mean, I remember one summer when we were like, this feels like normal now, like sort of coming out of COVID. And then there was Afghanistan and then, you know, Ukraine happened. And look, yeah, I don't know. The challenge is that when you launch something in a busy news period, you've got to have the confidence, I think, to look ahead and to know when when it's peaked and when you need to sort of nudge the audience into a different space, which is what we did with Brexit Cast. Mm. When the negotiations, it was clear, had kind of, 
Brexit wasn't done because Brexit hasn't been done and probably never will be done. But it was clear that when there was that kind of, we'd reached the end of the kind of hijinks negotiations and, you know, effectively we had officially left. At that point, I just said, I think this is the time to end it, you know, and, and move to the next thing and to leverage the audience and the feed. And, and that's when we created newscasts. And I remember getting a lot of criticism at the time going, oh, the BBC doesn't care about Brexit anymore and all this sort of stuff. It's like, sure. We obviously talk loads about Brexit in newscasts, but it, but that was the right moment. We could have just run that format into the ground and people would have dropped off. But it's a, it's about having the confidence, I think, to, to think about the next thing. And then, you know, look on the horizon and we saw the, you know, US elections and thinking, right, let's do a spin this format off into Americast. You can see elsewhere, like in the US with Crooked Media and what they've done with Pod Save America, which was basically built on the back of Trump. Um, and, and look at what they've done now. And I look at Crooked and I just think that's a great example of a production company who have, you know, jumped from one great podcast, one great format and have diversified. But having their at their core, and that's kind of what I, th- my, you know, our ambitions with Persephonica is that we have the the kind of you know, reactive news and journalism is our bread and butter, but we want to apply what we've learned in that space to other formats. So, for example, with the Dua Lipa podcast, which series two of At Your Service has just launched, our first interview was with Monica Lewinsky. Very cool. Dua never wanted to just do another kind of like flaky, superficial pop star interviews friends. It, it had to have teeth and gravitas. And I think that's what we brought to the table with that. You know, there's an amazing team working at Service 95 on that, booking brilliant guests. But we want it to feel like an informative space. And that's just a great example of younger audiences, predominantly young female audiences, which is obviously the holy grail <laughs> in, in, in any media, coming to a format and, and learning and engaging with informative content. And I think that's what Persephonica can bring to the table in, in that space as well. Are there any crossovers between the learnings between news agents and Dual Leapers podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Because what we're not doing with, you know, it's a weekly show and we are recording interviews in advance, but there are interviews that we put out pretty much days after we've recorded them. You know, the intros and the outros and the interaction with the audience is all very, very reactive because it has to be. Um, Otherwise you can hear it a mile off that it's just been like, bulk recorded and dumped you know like for example Dua really wanted to reflect the protests in Iran so we had emails and texts from our listeners who are in Iran and we voiced them up and yeah it sounded it sounded great and that's a story we want to come back to on the podcast so when you're doing a podcast that is interviewing activists and big names in the cultural space you you can't just ignore what's going on in the outside world it has to it has to be centred and and has to be aware of what's going on around it otherwise you just sound irrelevant. You do translate Dua Lipa's podcast into multiple languages right? Yeah we did that in series one it was a really interesting experiment I guess and I think what we learned from that is we, we tried to do sort of UN translation in that in that podcast so it involved uh, it was very it was, it was very labour intensive because you have to translate and then get voiced up both ends of the interview, uh, and then mix it and produce it in a different language. So it's very labour intensive. I think the next breakthrough for me, which which is coming, and, and we heard some of the software that's out there, is the kind of AI translation, which actually would then enable you to translate, to hear 
the translation through in somebody else's voice. So kind of like, mm. I don't know what you'd call it, not deep fake, is it? But it's like AI. So you would be able to hear Dua Lipa yeah. in Spanish rather than a voiceover artist. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when there'll be a real breakthrough in that. And I don't think we're far off. We, we experimented with a bit of it. It still sounded a bit roboty, But when that gets better, I think we will be in a place to just churn out in as many languages as you want and listeners will probably be able to decide that to be honest but we still are i mean look we've got interviewees where english isn't their first language so we're interviewing um pedro modavar um and he's he's going to do that um in his mother tongue and we're going to have a translator there and they're going to be in separate booths and we're going to then have to deal with that in in post which is always fun interesting is it a translator that sounds like it's his, it? it's his translator. So he will do that with his, okay. whoever he does. He, he obviously does mm-hmm. a lot of interviews. So he has a translator yeah, yeah. he works with. I know one of his translators. Oh, do you? Actually. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, might be, might be, if it's her. Yeah. might be her. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So that's, so, so look, we're, I think language and different, you know, pushing podcasts in different territories is something that I'm, I'm really interested in. Um, that's very and, cool. and it's a global market, isn't it? As we all know. And, 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 lots more territories are discovering podcasts and we need to make sure that they're available in the languages that they want to listen to them in. I heard a story about how America started that there was actually maybe two or three other bits of the BBC that were developing a format which was similar and you decided to take the initiative in terms of getting America out there. Does that sound familiar? Does that ring true? Oh, I remember at the time there was... Yeah, at the BBC, there are always about like 15 people working on the same thing. It's quite common. So there's like, I remember at one point there was, there were like four BBC climate change podcasts out produced by different parts of the organisation. I think they're a lot more organised now, thanks to the, the team at Sounds. And there's a brilliant commissioning team now. But there was a period, probably around that time, where it was a bit like Wild West and, and um, different teams were just commissioning content without, and then it was just appearing on the same day as something else. Um, but like that, that's the, the, the brilliance of the BBC as well. And the fact that it's so big and people are, are doing other bits. And I think competition actually is healthy. What I do know is that a podcast appeared after Americast shortly before the election, which I thought was weird. There was a world service podcast. Katy and Carlos, was that it? Uh, I think Maybe, it was called. Yeah. Yeah, and and that sort of appeared a few weeks before the election, and I and I and I thought that was a bit strange because I was like, there was clearly a, a lot of momentum uh, behind Americast and big audience figures. So to just to kind of like launch another podcast two weeks out of an election when we know podcasts take time to build up an audience, I thought was a bit counterproductive. But yeah, I don't, I don't remember. Well, the thing I was thinking of was um, maybe this is more like a, a folk story than than, than mm. reality. But maybe this mm. speaks to something about the way in which you got things done at the BBC was that, um, that there were a few different things about to be announced. And basically... I think you may have been at like Radio Days Europe or something and just said that it was a thing and then it was a thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, I did. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I did, um, I did do that. I had a brilliant boss though at the time, um, Kamal Ahmed, who is now running a startup called the News Movement, which is really, really interesting. And we're actually working with them on a, on a podcast project. But Kamal was my boss at the Beeb. He was the editorial director of BBC News and he's the best boss I've ever had because he basically saw that we were doing something, we were having success and he basically gave me a team and a pot of money and had my back. So yeah, I didn't go completely and just announce Americast out of the blue. 
Kamal knew about it. But yeah, basically a radio days Europe. Yeah, I did. I did just announce it uh, with agreement from Kamal. But I had the talent on board at that point, and that was the main thing. Sure, sure, sure. I, I suppose there's something interesting about like if uh, people at the BBC who want to kind of follow in your footsteps and like trailblaze these great mm. new formats within the organisation mm. and give them these brilliant new um, uh, mm. things to to work on. Um, I mean, what do you need? Do you need like a like a someone who's got your back, as you say, or like? Um, like, what does it take to kind of have the kind of successes that you did at the BBC? What kind of a person does it take to make that change happen? Yeah, I think you need to be a bit careful because in 2017 and 2019, you know, 2018, 2019, it was a very different landscape at the BBC. Um, and now it's a lot more structured and, you know, Jonathan Wall's team are incredibly uh, organized and brilliant and strategic and they know what they're doing so you know i i, I think it's just a, we're in a different time now but i but i guess there's something you need to have a brilliant idea right and and you need to believe in your idea and if you have the talent behind you as well that really helps and you basically just you need to kind of there's a bit of not taking no for an answer and really pushing it through to do that, yeah, you do need a stakeholder. You do need to have, you know, like one of the brilliant commissioners at the BBC behind you, whether it's, you know, Rianne Roberts or Luke Attenhorn. It helps if you've got somebody behind you who's like believes in your idea or John Manel going, that's great. We're going to make this happen. We're going to get the budget. We're going to, you know, push it forward. So I think that, yeah, as I say, the BBC is a big organisation and, you know, now there are cutbacks, right? But what's great to see is that they are you know, prioritizing audio. I think there's some, you know, we've, we've been speaking to BBC studios. I think there's some really interesting things in the pipeline there about how they're going to work with indies and again, drive titles internationally, which I think the BBC realizes they need to do. But yeah, back at the time it was weird. And and I think that's one of the things that I'm proudest of in my career that we sort of roll the pitch for things like Ukraine cast and America and whatever comes out now. There wasn't the news podcast team at the time. And yeah, basically I had to like pull a few fast ones behind the scene at the time to get it off the off the back. Because when I had the, came up with the idea for election cast, I remember there was a guy now who told me it was a terrible idea and has since come out and said you were right, which is, is nice to be vindicated. <laughs> but um, he said, no, I'm not sure about that. I don't think we need a daily election podcast. I think actually what the BBC, what we're doing is we're, we're talking to Five Live about clipping up some of their output and one of the presenters is just going to talk around it. I was like, no, let's do this. Honestly, this will be, this will be way better. And I'm happy to make it. It was that thing. I was doing another job at the time. I like convinced my boss to let me do that. Uh, I was kind of working on the social media out for BBC Westminster and then had to convince five live not to do the other thing and to do this. And, you know, they were like actually really incredibly supportive, but there's always that thing of like ownership and who's owning that. And I was like, no, 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 news are going to own it. Don't worry about it. And then I was going to Five Live. No, no, don't worry. Five Live, you know, it's like, I was, I was kind of <laughs> selling one, I was selling one set of people one thing. Well, just to get, because I knew it was fine, right? It was like, we know what we're doing. We've got these yeah. big journalists. And like, it was just kind of, there was a whole period of time at the BBC where, and only, you could have only have done this at the BBC, right? Because it just has the resource where, you know, it didn't have a budget, right? Brexit cast never had a budget until like it got onto BBC One. Before then, it was literally me and the talent. We all just wanted to make it and we just got it out there. And we, yeah, we brushed up a few a few incidents. There were a few moments where it was kind of like, who's paying for the engineers that are producing it? And, you know, but like you've got news gather, you've got BBC News Gathering, right? So that's that just enabled it to happen. So we did kind of just get our head down 
and just do it. And there were times where I came across managers who were just like not supportive of what I was doing and dragged correspondents out of a radio booth because I was wasting their time. We had those moments. But so again, it's back to that thing about if you've got an idea you believe in and you've got talent who want to do it. But just to be clear, to any new producers out there, do what your boss tells you. (laughs) 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 I'll just have that. I'll just have that caveat. I mean, you are definitely a doer. You know, I've seen how much you do on news agents at the moment and how involved you've been in all the projects you've worked on. But now you run a company as well. Do you have an idea of how that's going to... Because like traditionally, you start running a company, you kind of think, well, it's not going to change me. I'll still be creative. I'll still be on the ground. Mm. But it does happen. You know, you will end up being more management. Have you prepared yourself for that? What's the degree in which you'll still have your hand sort of like on the tiller? Sure. I mean, I've always struggled with this kind of, and I've, I've always pushed back on it a little bit, actually, that you can't be, and, and that's one of the reasons actually why I left the Beeb, because you get to the point, and lots of people do this at the Beeb, where they get to the point where they, you know, they're spending half their days listening to staff complaining about the BBC, when there's not much you can do about it, right? And the more you have to get involved in like restructures and all that stuff, it's kind of, especially when you've gone through like your fifth restructure, it's a bit like, right, okay, I think I'm done now. But yeah, there was, there's always, there's always this tension between as a manager, you should be doing that and not doing output. And, and actually at the Beeb in the news podcast team, as it was when I was there, I managed to find a a good balance where I was, you know, not, not editing the podcast every night because that's crazy and you can't do that. And, you know, I, I, I don't, do the edits on news agents. I, there's been a few times I've jumped in when we've got an idea or whatever, and just to kind of, we're, we're training up a really brilliant team around it. And I've got a team at Persephonica and there's a team at Global of producers. Um, but yeah, th- you can still be creative and the CEO of a production company. And in fact, if you're not, then that's a problem. And you mentioned Tom O'Hara, my um, co-founder. Tom doesn't come from a creative audio background at all. He's a fund manager. Uh, so he understands business and he understands spreadsheets and money, which having worked at the BBC for 14 years, I have no idea about the money. I was like, oh, budget. Wow, that's cool. Invoice. Wow, right, yeah. So, so you know, so I wouldn't have launched Persephonica without having somebody like that who had my back in, in terms of that. And we're, we're growing, we're hiring people, we're hiring creatives, we're hiring business affairs people. Persephonica is, is not a one-man band. At the same time, we are being tactical and targeted. And what I'm not trying to do with this company is take a load of investment, grow hugely quickly, and then try and sell it in three years. That's not what the game is here. We want to create a world-beating production company that makes very, very high quality, successful habit forming podcast formats that are really good. And we and we want to be the gold standard. And I see this journey as being a long one, you know, and we want to work with the best talent in front of the mic and behind the mic. As you guys know, it's a competitive space. There's a lot of demand for audio producers. And, and therefore, there's also a job, as I see it, in terms of training up the next generation of, of podcasters. And one of the things I want to do when we eventually have our HQ is going to be in Sheffield. We're going to have a base in London, but we're going to create an HQ in Sheffield. And what I want that to do and sort of speaking to stakeholders in South Yorkshire at the moment and various organisations, we want to create a place where 
talent in the region can get a job in the region working on audio and become brilliant producers and not have to travel to London or to Salford, which is actually just as hard <laughs> if you're based in Sheffield or other remote yeah. bands. Like, so, you know, can they get jobs in, in that region? Can they work with the biggest talent? Can they work on high profile content? So, so that's kind of what I want to do. But I, I've gone, I've strayed off from your question, but yeah, I still ultimately see myself as a producer and will always see myself as a producer. And I think that you know, you need to have that skill set because you need to be able to, somebody comes, you know, we're very fortunate that people are coming with us, to us with ideas and you need to kind of know straight away when you look at it as whether, whether an idea has got potential creatively, not just on a spreadsheet. You talk about playing to your strengths and one of yours clearly is social media and you've always had a really good relationship with that. You post daily on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. Why those channels? Why does that work so well for current affairs? Well, you just have to look at the, the, the data and the latest Ofcom report showed that TikTok was the fastest growing platform for news consumption. So we knew straight away when we launched the news agents that we had to have a presence on, on TikTok. You know, Twitter is obviously in terms of getting, you know, to the sort of decision makers and journalists and just awareness of what's going on and people like news junkies, we know they're on Twitter. So yeah, so social media is really important. I think visualization of podcasts i'm sure this is going to be something that you talk about regularly on your podcast the visualization element of podcast is moving very very quickly we're seeing you know youtube are going to be adapting its platform for podcast consumption you know i've even heard rumors of of podcast integration on tiktok and what that looks like so i i think that having a visual presence for your podcast is really really important will the news agents ever be fully envision i can see a situation where it might be you know we were already having people going looking at the clips and going where can i watch the full thing which is fascinating to see so it's early days yet for the podcast but you know the the, the studio that's been built at global a brand new studio has full visual capabilities the clips look great that's just very very important for us and especially when you've got talent who are known you know lewis goodall Emily, John, you know, who are, who are known for TV and they love it. They, they're really good on camera as well. Like, why would you not take advantage of that? And Lewis as well, you'll, you'll notice, has been doing explainer videos on TikTok and he's been doing films which will go on Global Player uh, and, and YouTube and, you know, cut downs of them will, will go on other platforms as well. You know, that's hugely important in terms of, like, of, of making our journalism travel and ultimately they're journalists as well as podcasters and we want to connect with audiences on all platforms and hopefully what you've got to hope is that you know what I, what I think we did very well at, at kind of newscast and brexit cast was building huge audiences we got some young people listening it was definitely a lot long, younger than a lot of other bbc output but it wasn't young enough it wasn't diverse enough and i think that's one of the reasons of kind of inhabiting platforms such as TikTok, you know, we need to bring in what we call sort of light news users, uh, people who are not news junkies. We want people who just are thinking, what, what the hell's going on? I want to find somewhere I can learn about the news, which feels like it's for me, you know, it's a space for me. And I think that's our ambition with the news agencies. We want to, you know, one of the ambitions of getting Lewis on board and really you know, focusing on the video content is to try and build a brand. And the hope is that people will watch Lewis's explainers and films on social mm -hmm. platforms and we'll come back to the podcast. 
And we were just talking on another podcast about how, you know, a film podcast is being advertised in a cinema. So what other mm. advertising models have you been using apart from within podcasts? We've obviously done a lot of traditional media. So John and Emily have been on, you know, front pages of newspaper magazines and we'll give a shout out to, to Carver PR who've been who've been working on the PR for, for this podcast alongside Global. They're amazing, you know, and they've done lots of the the biggest podcasts in the UK. They've been fantastic and they know what they're doing. So you should probably get them on at some point and, and, and talk to them about their strategy because they're great. That's a great idea. You know, social media, obviously, big one for us. I just don't think you can beat talking about your podcast in other podcasts. In fact, Alistair Campbell gave us a shout out on The Rest is Politics. And we've noticed loads of people Loads of his listeners have gone, oh, thanks for giving us the tip off about the news agents. So we've noticed lots of their listeners have come over to us. You just can't beat people who are consuming podcasts. Having your podcast endorsed in another podcast is just the best mm -hmm. form of marketing PR you could ask for. What else have we done? I mean, like, clearly a global has got, you know, the outdoor advertising is a huge part of its business. So that's been a, that's been a big thing. And eventually it's kind of... Do we take the show on the road? Do we start doing live shows? Do we create buzz around that? Which obviously, as we all know, is a, is a big part of podcasting. So I'm just really excited to see where it goes. But also like the success of it has just blown us all away. Like I'm, I'm not able, unfortunately, as much as I'd love to, to share listener figures, but it's, it's beyond our expectations of what, what a podcast would achieve in the first month. So we're all really happy. And the challenge now is just, as you know, with like daily output is to sustain it, is to keep growing, to keep people, the habit they have formed, to keep them coming back. And yeah, and, and, and hopefully it continues to grow. Dino Sophos, thank you so much for joining us on PodPod. Pleasure. Really nice to talk to you and good luck with the podcast. I will be listening. So that was Dino Sophos, who I'm sure you can agree, had some incredible insights into the world of news podcasting. So Matt, for you, what really stood out? I think I'm just still in awe of what he achieved at the BBC, which is not notoriously good at innovating on quite the speed that Dino operates at. So the fact that he got so much done was fantastic. Uh, also that podcasting has really given him the opportunity, not just in the BBC, but to, to leave it at a level which is competitive. You know, mm -hmm. he can produce a show at the scale of, of something the BBC was doing in the commercial sector, which, you know, even as long as 10 years ago would have been really, really, really hard. And I think even now, if you look at what's going on at the BBC in terms of local radio cuts, you know, there are a number of shows there which are performing really well in their local areas. Mm -hmm. For example, at weekends, my local radio station, Hereford and Worcester, they have a kind of gardening slot on a Sunday. And I would imagine, even though that is threatened with the chop in these new cuts, we'll probably find a home as a BBC Sounds exclusive mm. because there was an audience locally and actually they're probably an audience more nationally. It just so happens it, it started in the, the shires. So I think there is an opportunity for podcasting to be something of a safety net for successful radio that just needs to move on from its slot. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I come from radio, Matt, and... Obviously. Obviously, I come from radio. Sorry, not obviously, but for yeah, you. No, you know, Radio this. 1, I know. Yeah, yeah, we all, <laughs> we all know the backstory. But it was quite funny hearing about how Dino's kind of OB went terribly wrong and he was 
what yes. caught short um, he was pulled off air for a little bit and how actually that was so much more stressful I love live radio I love the adrenaline I love you know I, I think I kind of thrive off that mm. so but for you because you can sort of edit podcast into any way you know we kind of chop up our interviews ourselves and they might become slightly different beasts to how they began how do you feel about that is do you think there are kind of limits to the amount that we should be editing interviews and that sort of thing no i think it i think it's for podcasting i mean it's a different type of experience isn't it i think i mean we we make a lot of uh, entertainment shows at rethink audio and for those we often like will you know to a certain extent rehearse a conversation we will have a go at it we'll do a take where we'll get through the whole conversation we need to do and explain the story or whatever and then we might have another go at it and we might find sort of efficiencies in the conversation or remember bits or add new bits and find a kind of like sort of improvise on top of what we've done to create something which is better um, rather than trying to cut it together in the edit and of course that is also a good thing about podcasting is that it's pre-recorded so you can have a few goes at it. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important for current affairs as well because if you're explaining a really complex economic or political story uh, or science or whatever, it may be that you, know, as the journalist, you you actually might just feel like you just haven't done a good job at that time, you know, and you just need another run at it. And of course, if it's live, that's it you're off and that's whatever you said is it so I think the idea of being able to say actually can I have another run at that I think I could do it better is just the preserve of pre-recorded some things just work better that way I think Gideon podcasting does make all of our lives so much easier because it's not live right well I think that's a really interesting debate so Dino was on the Radio 4 media show with Adam Bolton of Sky, and you may have heard that. And Adam Bolton came back with a sort of what I would describe as the legacy broadcaster point of view, talking about living and reporting news as it happens, not half an hour, not two hours, not four hours later, or or several days. I think there are merits to both. And I know that there's some tension between some of the, if you like, uh, 100% live broadcast people and the podcast people. But actually, it's a healthy creative tension. Was there anything else for you, Gideon, that really stood out? Well, I think what I find inspiring is is the way that Dino talks about it. he loves creating new formats. There are lots of new opportunities for talent and room for ideas. And I do think that he's saying that's about more than podcasting. It's in many areas of media. Technology has really lowered so many barriers to entry it's fantastic and he's entrepreneurial he's taking ideas and going and going to make them and it's an inspiring story dino made a very good point thanks to rihanna's great question about the strong producer presenter relationship so you could say emma does such an amazing job Thank you both so much. It's been really lovely to hear from you and, of course, reflect back on our interview with Dino Sophos. Thank you so much for listening to PodPod. You can find out so much more about everything that PodPod are doing on podpod.com. So many PodPods. And you can find that AIE article that we've been talking about on there as well. Sign up to our daily email bulletins and follow us on social at PodPodOfficial, where you can rate and subscribe. Thank you so much to Gideon Spanier and to Matt Hill for joining me. The podcast is wonderfully produced by Emma Corsham for Haymarket Business Media. I've been your host, Rihanna Dillon. We'll see you next week. 